Would you open up with me to 2 Peter? 2 Peter, if you don't have a Bible, we'll pass one to you. Just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. Somebody will go back to the Bibles and, and grab one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, raise your hand. We'd love for you to be able to follow along in this particular, uh, particular text. It's on page 705, I believe, in the Bible that we hand out. 2 Peter, we're going to be looking still in verses 3 through 7. So if you would open up to that, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. There's an amazing statement in here. It says, we are going to become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. And I've been sitting with that and trying to comprehend that over the last weeks as we've been studying this. It doesn't mean we're going to become gods at all. It doesn't mean we'll become... We have one more need for a Bible up here. Uh, if somebody could grab... All right, we got it. It's coming. Um, it doesn't mean we're going to become gods, uh, but it means we're going to take on the character qualities of God, those that can be transferred to somebody like us who's limited in our human flesh. Uh, things like love, we can become loving, and, 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 and God is kind, we can, we can become kind and more kind. Um, God is patient, we can become patient, more patient. That's, those are the virtues, that's what it is to partake of the divine nature. Now the good news is, is this, is that God wants to do so much more than behavior management in our lives. It, you know what I'm talking about? When you know you're supposed to be loving or you know you're supposed to be kind, but uh, you, you're unable to do that in your own sort of inner being, and so you force yourself by will to do that. Uh, and, and, and you're sort of like this exhausting war against yourself as you're trying to do the right thing and be loving and be kind, but you don't really feel it on the inside. And there's some of life that's characterized by that. But, but what God really wants to do is something so much greater, something so much more wonderful. He wants to, to transform our character on the inside so that we actually can love from the deepest places of who we are. Now, the pathway to that transformation is, is not easy. It's not like he just zaps us and says, you know, um, you're new. It involves struggle, the Bible teaches us, and it involves, involves the application of our own will. There are times when we have to really apply ourselves to this work. Um, it, it, it involves community, the Bible tells us, and being willing to be transparent in the midst of community, letting others speak into our lives, sharing our struggles with them. It involves prayer, which sometimes involves getting up at 6.30 in the morning and joining us on Wednesday um, to pray. And it involves being persistent, not giving up. When it feels like you've fallen on your face a hundred times and you don't want to get up again to try and work on your character, it involves getting up again and, and, and letting God continue His work. These are tools, though. These are just tools that, that are applied. It's really God who's doing this work in us, this beautiful work of transformation. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God does it. And in this text that we're going to read, it says over and over again, He's given you everything you need. He's granted it to you. It says, He's granted, He's granted. He has it now. And then it says, make every effort in response to what God has given to see the virtues become part of who you are, to see your character transform. Well, let's look what it says, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us 
His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And we'll stop there. Now, we're working our way through these virtues over several weeks, and today we're going to look, we're going to hone in on verse 6 and explore the virtues of self-control, steadfastness, and godliness. So let's start, talk a little bit about self-control. What does this word mean? In the original language, it has to do, the root of it has to do with power, and so it's referring to power over the self. Power over the self. The opposite of self-control is self-indulgence. Self-control was a high virtue in Peter's day, in Jesus' day, not only in Christian circles, but throughout the world. And Josephus, who was a Jewish writer uh, shortly after the time of Christ, says, we ought to esteem those that do what is agreeable to temperance and prudence, self-control, no less glorious than those that have gained great reputation by their actions in war. Somebody who can meet the battle, the interior battle against self, is like a war hero. That's what he's saying. It's a great word for our day because we live in a context where there's been this sort of marriage of forces that create a toxic cocktail uh, that mitigates against our ability to control ourselves. We have the natural sinful desire which is already inside of us to elevate self. Many have said, C.S. Lewis says that, you know, the, the greatest sin is pride when we elevate self and all other sins flow out of that one. So that's a natural tendency that's already inside of us. And then you add to that the culture in which we live where you've got this intense appreciation of an individualism. Like whatever you want, right? Whoever you want to be, that's what matters most. And so we've got this culture telling us about self, self, self. And then add to that, we have a kind of an accessibility to things that work towards our self-gratification like at no other time in the history of the world. We can access wealth and amusement. I mean, imagine living in the time when every once in a while uh, a theater troupe would come rolling through town and, 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 and everybody would come out to watch that one show. Compare that to how many channels do you have on your TV every single night, right? I mean, look at the difference of the context in which we're living. And sex, I mean, how, how readily available is thoughts, our, our, our exploration of sex on the internet or uh, all the different avenues that this comes into our lives through advertisements constantly being pushed uh, towards us. It's, 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 a, it's a whole new world in that sense. And, and food, oh, one of the greatest and most challenging things living in the Bay Area, right? I mean, I, I've lived here nine years. I still haven't eaten at every restaurant on Solano Avenue. And I, I'm working on it. But just the, the number of opportunities and technology, which opens a world to us. Every time I get a question, I'm sitting working at my desk. Whatever question pops into mind, I can probably find an answer within a few clicks. That's distracting. 
It used to be that I have to go to the library, get the card catalog, you know, and that tended to slow me down a little bit. But now I can, I, so we have this incredible access, information constantly. We don't have any candies usually out in our house, especially when the kids were little, but we would go over to Grandma and Grandpa's house, and Grandma had a candy box sitting right there in the living room, just nakedly, right? And the kids would be there, and uh, they would just be going to the candy box and, you know, emptying it all in one shot um, because the pull, the magnetic attraction of the candy box was overwhelming. And uh, so Grandma and Grandpa made a rule that you can only have one candy a day. So our youngest was over there, and he went and got his one candy when we showed up. And then a little while later, he gets up, and he gets another candy. And Grandpa says, remember the rule, there's only one candy a day. And he says, well, that one was for yesterday, right? I didn't get to come to Grandma's house yesterday, so the magnetic attraction forces you to kind of rethink reality, you know? It's just overwhelming. Um, And it's like we're all living in Grandma's house all the time. So self-control becomes a huge thing for us. It used to be the world was limited by people's access to things. We have access to everything, so we have to rely on ourselves. You feel that? You feel that? You've got to rely on yourself so much to determine what you can and can't have. The world doesn't determine it for you in the same way. And how are you going to do that? Right? How are you going to do that? How are you going to exercise self control. Because you know the stakes are high. You know that if you don't exercise self-control, then the result is like the kid on Halloween night, right? You know, who sits there with the blue tongue, you know, uh, and, and just eating candy after candy, total sugar high, you know, the spiritual equivalent of that. If we don't somehow exercise self-control, that's where we end up. So how are we going to do this? Well, the good news is that the gospel makes self-control possible because what one of the things that the gospel does is it undermines the power of the self. This whole world is around, this whole word is around power and, and power over the self, and the gospel undermines power of the self. And so we see all kinds of things like this. We could go to many different passages, but in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, there's a conversation about your bodies and sexuality. And at the very end of it, Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And listen to this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's Jesus' death on the cross. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. See, that whole notion that you're not your own, you don't belong to yourself, that you, you're not just something to do whatever you want with. You're not in this world for your own purpose. That, that somebody greater owns you, and you have obligation to that greater one. That whole thing starts to undermine the power of self and to free us, to release us from the constant grip that self wants to grow and exceed in our lives. We have to understand that we're, our bodies, our beings, are instruments for the glorification not of self, but of God. And that very truth starts to undermine the power of self and to free us and to then enable us 
to experience self-control. They tell me, I don't know, I'm not, a, I'm not a person who's had fish. We had a couple of fish, and they didn't last very long. Um, but they tell us that if you put a fish in, in a bowl, that size of that fish will be determined oftentimes by the size of the bowl that you put it in. So if you have a big you know, aquarium, then the fish will grow to fit that aquarium. And the self is kind of like that. It grows to the size of the aquarium that you put it in. And the gospel helps us to put the self in the right size aquarium so that it doesn't grow and grow and continue to feed and want to feed itself on all the things that ultimately are not healthy for us. I've been reading this book by David Brooks, who's a New York Times commentator, and uh, it's called um, The Road to Character, I believe. Um, And in it, he talks about a transformation that happened in the training for Girl Scouts. In the early days, um, when they trained Girl Scouts, um, in the handbook, it actually said this, the chief obstacle to happiness comes from the overeager desire to have people think about you. That was in the Girl Scouts handbook in the early days. And then they go through and they look at, since the 80s, what is the Girl Scouts handbook and they contrast it to the 80 version, 80s version. It says, literally says, put yourself in center stage of your thoughts to gain perspective on the world around you. You see the, the, the total transformation in what is, is being taught there. The one, it builds a small aquarium so that the self doesn't become overruling and overwhelming. And the other one builds almost like an endless aquarium for constant introspection and, and self thought and and self-love and self-sort of massage to see what you want. And and the the results can be toxic. Because when the self becomes God, you know, then there's no holds barred and we're living in an environment where we have access to everything. And so the beautiful truth of the gospel is that it helps us to control the self, puts the self in the right frame. Let's move on. So self-control is is a beautiful virtue that we want to take on as we dig deeper into the gospel. But steadfastness is also one. This word steadfastness has to do with the capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. It was used in a military sense in the beginning, and then it came to be used for religious persecution. Somebody who would bear up under religious persecution was steadfast. And again, you can see the transformation. We've, we've come to this many times in the life of Peter. Here he is teaching about steadfastness. This is the guy who, you know, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And then when, uh, when it, like, you know, just a short while later, he was called upon just to even acknowledge that he knew Jesus, he failed. And he denied him three times. So the picture of the opposite of steadfastness, that's Peter in that moment. And here he is, a mature believer, somebody who has grown and come to appreciate deeply the virtue of steadfastness, and he's calling it forward and saying, let God work steadfastness in you. And we're tempted like Peter was uh, a thousand times a day, right? Every day. To cave in, to cave in and, and deny who we really are in Christ. We're tempted to hide who we are, you know. What'd you do this Sunday? Oh, I just hung out with a bunch of friends. And that's what you mean when you went to church, right? 
you don't want to say church because, you know, we want to hide or whatever. And, and so we're tempted over and over again to do the expedient thing, you know. There's, the, there's this way to do it. You know that's the honorable way and it's how God would want you to do it. But if I just do it this way, right, I'll get more money or you know, I'll get a promotion or, you know. And so we're tempted we're tempted to cave in, not to bear up under the difficulty. And then there's the temptation to despair um, when life around us is, is falling apart and it seems like God's promises are not being fulfilled in our lives. Um, we all have that temptation to despair, to not bear up under it and continue to believe and trust in God. It's, it's part of who we are. We're like Peter. And why do we do this? Why do we do these things? Why do we hide? Why do we cave in? Why do we do the expedient? Why do we despair? Why do we succumb to the pressure on the outside of us? And, and ultimately, isn't it, it's because we're afraid. We're afraid that if we remain steady, something bad will happen. That we won't get that promotion, or that person won't think well of us, or we'll lose money, or go on down the line. We're afraid. We're afraid that if we hold the line and remain true to who we are in Christ, then something bad will happen. Well, how are you going to become unafraid? Well, you know the answer is going to be it's the gospel again, right? And it's, 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 it's verses like in Colossians that tell us that actually, despite the circumstances and whatever you think is going on, your life is already secure, and perfectly so. Look at Colossians 3, 1 through 4 with me. We'll, we'll put it up. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Listen to this. For you have died. I always tell this to soldiers, right? If you want a fearless soldier, tell him, look, just go out there as if you're already dead. And then you won't be afraid. And you'll be able to do the right thing. And chances are you even might live longer than if you operate out of that kind of gripping fear. They always tell that to soldiers. Well, Paul's telling that to us right now. For you've died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the gospel. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So the one who made the universe and redeemed the universe has already hidden your life away. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of? And so you can bear up. You can be steadfast in the midst of it. When I was in seminary, a preacher came to our chapel, and he was an interim preacher at a very, very large church. But he was also CEO of some known company. And he talked about what it was like to preach to a church that, you know, you didn't have to worry about what you said. Because he was already fully secure. He had a job, and he would come in, he'd preach, he'd say, he'd say I, I can say whatever I want, because I don't care if they let me go, right? He was secure, because he was secure in some other thing, so he could do the right thing in that circle. Now, a good preacher hopefully will do that anyway, right? <laughs> let's keep me accountable here, right? That I be steadfast and I say the things that, are, that God wants me to say right and true, bear up under the pressure even if it hurts. And sometimes it does, right? 
But that's what it means to be, to be secure in some area over here so that you can do what's right in your life. That's what it means to be steadfast. And, and, and the gospel, as we really get that we are hidden away with Christ, we become steadfast. The third one is godliness. I like this word a lot. I, I, I struggled with this one the most. The root of this word means to step back. Now, how would that fit in? The root of the word godliness is to step back. And what it has to do with when you encounter something great, something awe-inspiring, something reverential, you step back. That's, where, that's how we get this word. And so it refers to um, this kind of reverence or awe for God that then shapes the way that you live and you move through the world. It's behavior that's quickened by uh, the presence of greatness, you know? Like in a military context when the commanding officer walks in and everybody just sort of changes their physical demeanor, right? It's, it's kind of like that. That's what this godliness, it's, it's understanding God so that that changes who we are. And, and it was actually used not just in the Christian settings, it was used very much in the Greek settings. And, 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 and godliness was to understand those other gods and let those other gods shape the way that you live. And then, but then we bring it in and think about it with respect to the Christian context. Now, there's a famous church debate that happens uh, in many churches. Every church has to figure this out. Are we going to be casual or formal? Are we going to wear casual clothes or formal clothes in our church, right? And we have differing opinions on that. And some churches say, oh, man, we want to just dress down and just wear whatever we want because God is near and he's close, and he accepts us for who we are. And that's true. And then there's other churches where they say, you know what? God is so awesome and powerful and amazing that we want to dress up because we want to honor God when we walk into church. And guess what? That's true too. Right? Because God is both. He's close and he's near, but he's also awesome and powerful and wonderful. He's all of that together. And we have to celebrate the nearness of God. I don't really care how you dress, okay? So you can dress up, and if you're doing it because you want to reverence God, great. If you want to dress down, fine. But the point is, is we, we, we need to somehow hold both of those in tension. We have to celebrate the nearness of God and the openness of God. But we also, and I think maybe in the American church, this is something that we're weaker on. We need to recover a sense of the awesomeness of God, and even to the point where that shapes the way that we dress or live in the world, right? That's an okay motivation. It's an important motivation. Psalm 53 says, Our God comes, He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire, around Him a mighty tempest. It's okay to remember that's the God that we worship and let that shape how you behave in the world. In fact, it's an important part. You may not be able, you may not be able to see the kind of transformation unless you really connect with the holiness and the righteous and the not awesomeness of God. When I was burning out uh, in the beginning of this church because I was working too hard and had my mind on the wrong things, one day I went off and I sat in Marin Headlands and just stared at the ocean for pretty much a whole morning, and I just was pondering the, the ocean, and something happened as I kept thinking about how far the ocean went. 
you know, like I kept thinking, well, how much water is in the ocean? And, and if I took a cup and, 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 you know, poured it out, how many times would I have to do that to empty the ocean? And, and just sort of getting my mind around how big the ocean was. And, and what happened is I became right-sized as I went through that process, right? Oh, yeah, here's me. I sort of was able, after a while, to think of myself as a little speck sitting on the Rin Headland side, you know, and here's this vast ocean, and suddenly I become right-sized. Well, this is what blows me away. The ocean is like that. It, it right-sizes you. It's big. Isaiah 40 says that all the waters can fit in the hollow of God's hand. So you think the ocean's big. Now think about your God. How awesome, how mighty, how powerful He is. When we really conceive that, it changes the way we live. It moves us into godliness. It moves us into godliness. And so one of the important things is for us to spend time pondering the greatness of God. I want to invite you this morning, and Miguel, if you would come up, and, and we're going to spend a little bit of time um, just singing before we take communion and a, a time for you to respond, to invite you into self-control and to steadfastness and to godliness. And let me just remind you, God has not given up on you in this fight. He's granted you everything that you need, right, for this battle. That's what it says in 2 Peter. He's given you everything that you need to change you from the inside. And then he just calls you as response to make every effort to respond to his goodness, what he's granted, to make every effort to respond to that. And how do you do that? You get into community. That's why the church is so important. You try, to, you try to exercise on your own and you can get a certain way, right? But when you bring community into the mix and you're, you're, you're scheduled to meet somebody to play tennis with them or to go running with them, it accelerates your growth and your, your ability to do that thing. And that's what the church is in this whole pursuit of self-control and steadfastness and godliness. It helps us because we're community. But you've got to get in community and open yourself up in that community. And then you've got to get in the community of the cloud of witnesses that go through all of history. People in the Bible have struggled with these same things just like you. And they're waiting to do life with you if you'll open your scripture and find somebody in there whose life reflects your life and get to know that person and sit with them and understand them, and through their story, God will transform you from the inside. And then when we come into worship like this, and I'm praying, and I'm praying that we're going to be more and more eager to gather together and, and worship the Lord together, because we know the importance of the, the awe, being in touch with the reverence and the awe of God. And worship is where we experience that. And then lastly, we can just ask God, would you change me? And that's what we want to do right now. We're going to sing a couple of songs. Let's stand up together. Can we do that? And if you want to kneel down, you could do that. Um, our bodies are important to our expression of prayer. So we could do that. If you want to go to the back, somebody would be willing to pray with you in the prayer corner there. But let's invite God to do a work in us to make us more self-controlled. Maybe there's a particular thing, anger, or pornography, or 
relational issues or money or some area of your life where you're lacking in self-control and you want to invite God this morning into that circumstance. Maybe it's steadfastness. You're not bearing up in some way you'd like to. Maybe it's, it's godliness. You don't have a clear sense of the awe of God. But let's together go to Him and ask. When the church is gathered, the Spirit is present. Let's ask God. Let's ask God.